Let me say again what a privilege it is to be amongst you, and I thank those concerned for the invitation to come. And uh, I've known so many people here in different contexts uh, over the last years that I felt perfectly at home uh, amongst you all here today. This morning we were looking at a Bible character, one of the Bible characters with about the shortest name in the Bible. I don't know if it's the shortest, but one of the shortest names. This evening I want to take up another character study, as it were, in somebody with a rather longer name, this guy, Epaphroditus, which is quite a name. It's a little bit different from Fred or Jimmy. One of the many people who would be, uh, who, who are included in Paul's word in Philippians 2 and 29, where he says, honor such men. Now, of course, the main thing is, as we said this morning, that we honor Christ. And that's why I asked that we would sing that song earlier on, Jesus is the name we honor. That's what it's all about. Every part of Scripture is about him. Majestic name above all other names, the highest heaven and earth proclaim that Jesus is our God and we will glorify him. But Scripture gives us portraits of many people like Epaphroditus whose stories are instructive and helpful in seeking to trust and follow that Lord and Master. So far as Paul himself is concerned in the New Testament, he would write elsewhere about following his example, but it, was, it would be, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, or perhaps insofar as I am of Christ. And here in verse 29 of this passage in Philippians 2, we read about Epaphroditus, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Here's one of the many associates of Paul who are mentioned in Scripture, and he's mentioned with this commendation, honor such men, Philippians 2.29, such as, well, men like Epaphroditus. And I want to take as our text the words of verse 25, where Paul refers to him as my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Three phrases that say much about the kind of person that Epaphroditus was and teach us much about what Christians should be. But, but think, first of all, about that, uh, that phrase, honor such men, such people, I suppose we would say nowadays. And I wonder, do you think it would be true to say that you can tell a lot about a society from the kind of people who are admired and perhaps idolized? Maybe about individuals too. The kind of people that you admire and applaud, that says something about the kind of person that you are. And I wonder, if, I wonder how many people here can remember the television program, This Is Your Life, in which there would be a subject, who, a subject of the program who had been kept in the dark, and then there was, it was an Irish presenter called Eamon Andrews who would pop out from somewhere or other with that big red book and surprise the guest who was to be the subject. And sometimes the subjects of that program were people unknown to the public at large who had given admirable service to other people, perhaps especially in the earlier days 
of the programme. My impression is that as time went on, it came to uh, concentrate more on big-name people, sportsmen, film stars, and no slight to them. Thankfully, there are many of them who have been successful in their areas, and not only that, but have done much good, much charitable work for the service of others. But when we read here, honour people like Epaphroditus, we're reminded that the real heroes, certainly in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the, in spiritual eyes, are people who would probably never be surprised by old Eamon Andrews or Michael Aspel it was after that with his big red book, but who faithfully serve the Lord without any fanfares or trumpets. Let me illustrate what I'm uh, thinking about in this way. Some years ago, there was a report about an actress, a soap opera star, who was to be receiving a rise of £20,000. A rise of 20000 And just when you might be thinking that an extra 20000 would be quite useful onto your wages or salary every year, let me add that she was to be having a rise of £20,000 per week for acting in a soap opera. Some Premier League footballers in England, I believe, are paid £350,000 per week. By contrast, on the other side of it, here's a quotation from the prayer letter of a young missionary in South America, somebody who, instead of enjoying just uh, a good and comfortable life at home, had given herself to the demanding task of missionary work. It was actually in Ecuador. And I quote from her prayer letter, It has been necessary to make some adjustments to the culture. Breakfast of fresh pineapple, papaya, rice, and beans, and a fried egg at 6.30 a.m. takes a bit of getting used to. We do get a change now and then. Sometimes the beans are red instead of black. And then she goes on about uh, language study, Embarrassing mistakes become part of life. When traveling by bus, it is necessary to whistle to the driver at the required stop. However, it is impolite for ladies to whistle and therefore necessary for, to, to ask a man. I tried to ask somebody to whistle for me and soon everybody on the bus was blowing kisses back to me. And she says, oops. But yeah, that's just a, a, a trivial thing in a way from a letter. But that young missionary was committed to that hard work of trying to learn a language and fit in and learn a culture for the sake of the spread of the gospel. That's the kind of person that should be honored. And thank God there's nothing intrinsically wrong with being a, well, an actor, an actress, a football, a, a sportsman anything of that kind, although it must be quite difficult. I suppose when you think of acting, it must be quite difficult to live as a Christian and maintain good standards in that area. But wouldn't you say it's people like that young missionary who are the people to be admired and honored? Would that be your reckoning? Because that really is a kind of diagnostic question that tells you something about yourself from the kind of people that you really admire. Anyway, that's the introduction. Epaphroditus. Let me speak of him under these three headings that we find in verse 25. And first of all, he's described as my brother. Epaphroditus, my brother. 
And of course, that's the main thing. We're reminded the basic thing about the church. In Christ, we are all brothers and sisters to each other. You see that again in the following chapter, chapter 3 and verse 1, where we have finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. As so often in, his, in the New Testament epistles, where Paul addresses his readers as my brothers. If people are born into God's family or adopted into God's family, and we know it's, it's put both ways in the New Testament, isn't it? then that means we are brothers and sisters to each other. And this brother, Epaphroditus, well, he's mentioned in Philippians. He's mentioned in glowing terms, really, by Paul from his prison cell in Rome. And let's just remind ourselves of what had happened. Epaphroditus came from Philippi. Philippi which once could have said, we have heard a joyful sound, only it was at midnight after an earthquake, if you follow me, when Paul and Silas, you know, remember, and and singing praises to God at midnight. And Acts tells of the beginnings of the church there with that wonderfully diverse trio of people that are described in the book of Acts, prosperous Lydia, the cured slave girl, and the jailer. And somehow, and at some time, Epaphroditus was converted as well. And when the Philippian church heard that Paul was in prison in Rome, and that's a whole other story, of course, they wanted to send him a gift. We don't know what the gift was, but they wanted to send something, and Epaphroditus was the person chosen to take that gift to Rome. Philippians really is Paul's thank you letter. Although, of course, he deals with a lot more things than just saying thank you there. And it includes this in verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, who is, it says, your messenger. Apostolos is the Greek actual word, which literally means a sent one to minister to my need. But then Epaphroditus took ill. Now, I know he was a brother. He, he was a man. And uh, some people may say that a man has only to have the slightest headache and you would think that he's dying and, and, and all that. But no, Epaphroditus was really ill. It wasn't just man flu or any of these kind of things. Verse 27 says he almost died. Not only was he ill, but he was critically ill, near to death. And not only was he critically ill, but he heard that the people in Philippi had heard that he was critically ill, and they were worrying about him. And you see that in verse 26, he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And that speaks, wouldn't you say, of that bond of fellowship that existed within the uh, fellowship of the church in these days, and uh, the, the bond between the, what we might nowadays call the sending church and the brother who was far away from them. It wasn't at all a case of out of sight, out of mind. They were concerned for Epaphroditus, especially when they heard about this illness. I remember reading once of another missionary who was preparing to come home after a long period of service and wondered 
in her letter, will the congregation still remember me? Well, the congregation certainly ought to remember that there ought to be that kind of care for each other and that kind of prayerful support. Epaphroditus, however, recovered. And now Paul would send him back to Philippi so that, uh, what is it, verse 28, you may rejoice at seeing him again and so receive him in the Lord with all joy. I wonder, when verse 25, verse 25 says, I thought it necessary to send him to you, and maybe he meant specifically to say, to emphasize that, just in case anybody in Philippi should say to Epaphroditus, what are you doing back so soon, as if he had chickened out or something like that. And this, is a, this, this guy, he wasn't like Demas, for example, whom many of you will remember the story of the one who is described in Second Timothy 4 and 10 as Demas, who, because he loved this world, has deserted me. He had drawn back from commitment, the commitment that he showed initially. Like many, as we were saying this morning, who may at one time appear to be keen and zealous for the Lord, but you see them later on and you discover that, well, a lot of that keenness has kind of cooled down. That's how apparently it was with Demas. It's not the way it was with Epaphroditus. He had gone on in the Lord's ways. He was the kind of person to be admired and honored. The world may give its plaudits to people far less worthy of them, but it's far more important to be what God wants you to be and to be where God wants you to be. And look again at the last phrase of the chapter. It says, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Risked his life. Going to see Paul in Rome would be a risky thing. And then there was his illness. But Epaphroditus was prepared to risk much for Christ's sake. I think all the commentaries on Philippians draw attention to the fact that the word that is actually used was, in the times, a gambling word. It was used for a gamble where everything turned on the, you know, the roll of the dice or, or whatever. Not that the Bible is, of course, sympathetic in any way to gambling. That belongs to a different, to the covetousness of a materialistic society. But it does speak of the, the kind of the extent of his commitment to Christ, that he was willing to gamble with his life for Christ's sake. Let me, let me give you this from some sentences from one of the commentaries. It says, in the early church, there were societies of men and women who called themselves the parabolani, which means the riskers or the gamblers. They ministered to the sick and imprisoned, and they saw to it that, if possible, martyrs and sometimes even enemies would receive an honorable burial. And it gives this example in the city of Carthage during the great pestilence of A.D. 252, Cyprian, the bishop, showed remarkable courage in self-sacrificing fidelity to his flock and love even for his enemies. He took upon himself the care of the sick and bade his congregation nurse them and bury the dead. What a contrast with the practice of the heathen who were throwing the corpses out of the plague-ridden city and were running away in terror. Well, of course, the Bible doesn't say you should be stupid or needlessly reckless. 
But that's the word that's used of Epaphroditus in undertaking that journey to Rome in the interests of Paul and on behalf of the Philippians, he was risking his life. Epaphroditus, my brother, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Jesus' love. And that's a a wonderful hymn that says, even, even when death comes, when for a while we part, this thought will soothe our pain that we will still be joined in heart and one day meet again. So if that's what Christians are and should be toward each other, brothers and sisters, The second word in the text speaks of what Christians are and should be in the service of Christ, my fellow worker. Paul had a liking for using words that started with the the Greek prefix soon, which is, I suppose, roughly equivalent to what we we use the expression co in in our English language, co-workers, co-laborers, and so on. Here it is, my fellow worker. Epaphroditus was one of that group of people who were not content to be sightseers or spectators in the kingdom of heaven. Maybe there are some people like that who want to believe in Jesus, right enough, who want to be assured of a place in the many mansions above, to be on his side, but they don't want to get too serious. They maybe have even heard that there is such a thing as fanaticism, extremism, and so they would rather, you know, play it cool. Well, Epaphroditus wasn't like that. Paul wasn't like that. And we shouldn't be like that either. My fellow worker. Well, we know there is, of course, such a thing as extremism. And of course, Jesus spoke about being wise as serpents. But let not that be an excuse for lack of zeal. Nor was he a spectator. I remember an American pastor who once told us a story of the time when the then president of the United States, President John Kennedy, appointed a person to be what was to be called director of physical fitness in America. And on one occasion, he was interviewed by a newspaper reporter, and the reporter asked the question, what has American football done for physical fitness in the United States? You know that game, that strange game that they call football and play with their hands. Uh, But we know the game, and that was the question, what good has American football done for physical fitness in the USA? And the answer that he got from this director of physical fitness was absolutely nothing. And, of course, the reporter spluttered about a bit for, uh, what do you mean, And and his explanation was, American football is a game in which there are 22 players on the field who desperately need a rest, and there are thousands of people in the terraces who desperately need exercise. So it has done nothing for physical fitness in the USA. Well, there's nothing wrong with watching a game. That's all right, up to a point. But spectators don't win events. And in the kingdom of God, spectators don't accomplish anything. What is needed is a team of workers, 
fellow workers, people like Epaphroditus who get down to it, who are ready to put their all into the service of Christ, whatever that may mean for them individually. Whether it may be the sacrificial work of uh, uh, hard work of language study preparatory for work on the mission field or such as was illustrated earlier on, whether it's the unspectacular behind-the-scenes work of those who provide the backup for much of the church's work, whether it's the steady service of those who teach the young or, or lead the singing or lead a house group or whatever, or whether it's in the endeavor to maintain a witness in difficult places, in the workplace notably, or the place of study where maybe often the air is very blue and the atmosphere is far from what we would like it to be, to maintain a witness there. Workers, these are the people needed in the kingdom of God. And Paul commends Epaphroditus, my fellow worker. And then the third word is fellow soldier. And we all know that's a common image in Scripture, isn't it? And indeed in hymnody. You get things like stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Paul may have been confined under arrest, perhaps house arrest in Rome, but he was still in the battle and he rejoiced in the fellowship of Epaphroditus as a fellow soldier. Sometimes we think of the Christian life as, as a battle. That is at the individual level. You're in a battle with, as, as is sometimes said, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And even if you have to stand alone, well, stand then, another of the hymns says, stand then in his great might with all his strength endued and take to arm you for the fight, that strange word that's used, the panoply of God, which means the whole armor of God. But here, of course, we're reminded that actually we aren't alone. We are part of an army, a kind of salvation army, if you like. And the call is to get into the action. Elsewhere, Paul would speak about the discipline that is needed if you're going to be a soldier. A soldier is a man or a woman under orders, somebody who must carry out the word of command. And the Christian soldier, well, we have a commanding officer, don't we? We have a commanding officer, and it's his word that we are to obey. And everything that we're told about Epaphroditus marks him out as a good soldier, somebody who had put himself at the command of his commanding, at, at the obedience to his commanding officer, by which I mean not really Paul, but the Lord himself, not even the Philippian church that had sent him on that mission, but the Lord who is the church's king. And if we reflect on the image of the soldier, well, it does remind us of certain things. It reminds us of the activity of the enemy, for one thing. The whole image of soldiering and warfare implies clearly that there is an enemy at work. And Paul was very much aware of that fact. Principalities and powers mustering their unseen array. Sometimes the devil may make himself very obvious. Sometimes he hides himself. But it's clear enough that there is an enemy 
at work. And we know it. There are, there are people and forces today, very evidently, that are working against the cause of the Lord and seeking to overcome every vestige of Christian influence and heritage that has come down to us. There are people who are sometimes deliberately and consciously, and perhaps sometimes unconsciously, working against the cause of Christ. And behind all of that, there is an enemy of God and man who has no chance of victory, but who, as the saying is, will take down as many as possible with him. You've only to think of many of the features that concern us around in this society today, such as the obvious onslaught on the unborn that has taken place in recent decades, such as the campaign to take advantage of the, the natural misgivings of people about the end of our life in this world to argue in favor of euthanasia, such as the fact that so many of the children in our land now are brought up without any knowledge of the Bible or of Christianity, such as the rejection of marriage and the breakdown of families, you have only to think of things like that to realize that this talk about being involved in a war is no overstated rhetoric, but solid truth. You know that phrase from the parable that Jesus told, the parable of the wheat and the tares, where the owner of the field said, an enemy hath done this thing. That could be said about many things in our society today. An enemy has been at work. And it all highlights the urgency of the task. There is a need for an army of Epaphroditus's. That takes a bit of saying, but there is a need for such an army who will, who will take their place against that enemy. Another thing that the, talk, the image of the soldier brings to mind, of course, is the, the armor of God. And you know, the, you know what I'm thinking about, because Paul develops that picture in a couple of places, notably in Ephesians 6, also written during his confinement in Rome. And he may well have looked at the armor of his guard and likened that to the different parts of the equipment uh, of the armor which God supplies for his people. What did he specify? Let me just give you again in Ephesians six fourteen, It says, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take for helmet salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit. That's a whole message, of course, in itself, going into the different pieces of that armor which God supplies. And it's a reminder that Epaphroditus, Paul, all soldiers of Christ need to be equipped with that armor that comes from above. It's an equipment that is given for the battle. Uh, once, some years ago, there was a noisy demonstration in Whitehall, and there was a company of lifeguards nearby. You know how they look so immaculate in their tidy uniforms and gleaming equipment? And on this occasion, one of their horses was spooked 
panicked, fell down, and the lifeguard was in danger of being trampled until another trooper came to to help him. And he was struggling to get through the crowd, and this guy eventually drew his gleaming cavalry sword to clear a way through the, the mob, which he did, and eventually was able to sheath his sword with great relief. And when he was interviewed afterwards about his part in this incident, he said, I was scared. Not that I would have wounded anybody. I really don't know how to use this sword. It's just for ceremonial purposes. Well, we read about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I suppose many people think of that sword of the Spirit as if it was just for ceremonial purposes. You know, a, a book to have in a bookcase or, or a gift to give on certain occasions. But of course, God hasn't given us it for ceremonial purposes, has he? It's to be used. It's part of the armor. And when we talk about the need for Christian soldiers, we're actually not talking about a nice dress parade where everybody has their best uniform on. We're talking about the need to get into the thick of the action and to get out into the world and to do battle there for truth and for goodness. That image may, in a way, may suggest violence and aggression, and of course that's not the point. In a different sense, the Christian is to be peaceable and gentle. But that image of the fellow soldier makes the point that it is not going to be easy to be in the Lord's service, the world being what it is, especially today. There may be wounds sustained in the battle, but the call of the Lord is to get involved to enlist in his army and get involved in the battle. So that image speaks of the activity of the enemy. It speaks of the armor of God. And lastly, the other thing to notice is that it speaks of the assurance of victory. Listen to it again in the hymn, Fierce may be the conflict. Strong may be the foe. Then how does it go on? But the king's own army, none can overthrow Round his standard ranging, victory is secure. That's so. Even if there may be times when it seems otherwise, the outcome is not in doubt. We are on the victory side, which is no ground for triumphalism or anything of that kind, but it is a reason for encouragement. God's kingdom will come. His cause will triumph. His victory is assured. And we are called to enlist in this great army of the Lord, even as Epaphroditus had done. There is the activity of the enemy. There is the armor of God. There is also the assurance of victory. That we who are in this battle fight not for victory, but we fight from victory on the victory side. So there's what is uh, said about this seemingly minor character of the New Testament, although actually nobody is minor in God's eyes, Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Paul says, honor such men. And one way of doing that is in seeking to, to learn what we can from him, to take encouragement to remember that we are brothers and sisters 
in the family of God, brothers and sisters to each other. Now, we are called to get into the Lord's work not as spectators, but as workers, and to enlist in this great army which is involved in this conflict. We were, some of us were sharing earlier on a saying, which in, in my mind was given to me by John Blanchard, the evangelist, about Christian service. Perhaps especially in his case, he was talking about people who are getting older, and the phrase was, as much as I can, as well as I can, for as long as I can. And that's a good uh, motto, as it were, for the Christian soldier. Brothers, workers, soldiers, that's God's call for you and for me. So let's pray about that now. Lord, our Father, we thank you for people like Epaphroditus, not well known to the world at large, but one of this great army of your people. We thank you for him as a brother, a brother to Paul, a brother to the church in that day. And we thank you, O Lord, for that great grace that calls us to be brothers and sisters within your great family. We remember him as a fellow worker as well. And pray, O Lord, that you would reveal to each of us here the part that you want us to play as workers in your kingdom. And we've thought of him as a soldier, a fellow soldier. Lord, as we remember these things about the activity of the enemy, we remember also the armor that you supply through your spirit and for the assurance of victory that you give, that we fight indeed not for victory because that victory has been won once and for all, but we fight from victory. And we thank you, O Lord, for that assurance. Grant us that we too may be amongst those people who can be called brothers and sisters, fellow workers, fellow soldiers, and all in the name of Jesus, our great Lord, Master, commanding officer, as it were, and for his name's 